In the forenoon of the 14th of July 1950, I boarded a train at the Portsmouth Harbour Station and headed for Wales. The journey was long, tiring, and largely uninteresting, but the first sight of my ship cheered me considerably. Unfortunately the train was just about to enter Pembroke Dock Station so my view of opportune, at that time, was fleeting. However, it was enough to stir my soul. Pembroke Dock, I must add, was a small community opposite Milford Haven Town and laying on the opposite side of the eponymous sound. After alighting from the train, humping my huge kit bag and hammock, I trudged toward the dockyard. The journey, fortunately, was downhill. Various snatches of the sight of opportune spurred me onwards, but I wasn't unconscious of the surrounding countryside which was beautiful. The dockyard, alas, was not. Most assuredly, it had seen busier and better days, before my arrival. The waters of Milford Haven shimmered in the bright sunshine and seagulls, in their hundreds, screeched and swooped all around me as I neared the drab and dreary-looking dock. Suddenly, there she was. A clear and unimpeded view of my ship lay there before me, finally. As I walked along the dockside, I was able to discern every feature of the famed opportune. From stem to stern, she was clearly a working ship. She displayed all the signs, as well as the wear, of her honest toil at sea. For all her understandable lack of review condition, she was clean, neat, and shipshape. Even the fact that she lacked the guns of her main armament didn't deter my immediate pride and opportune. The feeling of exultation I felt, upon viewing her and realizing that I was about to join her, was tremendous. As I continued to walk toward her, I marveled at the sleek classical lines of the destroyer. A destroyer, it must be said, that looked sadly out of place alongside the dirty and uninspiring fueling jetty. Perhaps only those who love the sea, ships, and boats, can appreciate fully the feelings, that welled up from deep within me, at that moment. As I approached Opportune, I continued to note as much as I could about her. Painted on her stern and both her sides below her fossil, denoting the ship's identification, were the large black figures D.180. This number was similar, in most respects, to a vehicle registration number and when moving in ports and at certain other times, this designation also would be displayed by pennants flown at the yardarm. This number could also be termed the ship's call sign, because it was used, in one form or another, by both visual and WT branches of the communications fraternity. It was also noted that, because it was still before sunset, both the white ensign and the Union flag were fluttering in the slight breeze. The white ensign was flying proudly at the stern and the Union flag was flying, on the jack staff, at the stem. Every aspect concerning these two flags would be of very great importance to me, in my new calling. Without doubt, no other flags are so demanding of propriety in their use and handling, in the Royal Navy. On the jetty and level with the ship's waist, a companionway was in place which allowed me to gain access to my new home. It was awkward, on the narrow walkway, to progress while carrying my kit bag and hammock. However, after a slight struggle I accomplished the task and, if the man's understanding smile was anything to go by, made the day for the lone figure guarding the gangway. Immediately upon boarding the ship, I faced aft and saluted the quarterdeck. This strictly observed action is inviolable and none comes aboard a naval vessel without honoring the custom. Leaving my gear where it lay, I reported to the quartermaster and handed over my papers. The man, who had witnessed and enjoyed my difficult crossing from the dockside, greeted me warmly. It was obvious that my arrival was expected not, you understand, that I personally was expected, but, merely, a warm body wearing an ordinary signalman's insignia on his uniform. The quartermaster seemed a friendly soul, but a friendly soul who was rather bored with the inaction he had clearly been experiencing. After a short time, Spent in pleasant conversation, a seaman passed. The QM, collared the man and requested that he take me to my mess. 
my new shipmate quickly picked up my hammock and bid me to follow him. My new colleague was friendly and genuinely wished to be helpful, but he wasn't stupid. The hammock was like a sack of feathers, compared to the bulging kit bag. The same kit bag, it must be remembered, which I had humped around all day while on railway stations, changing trains and, particularly, while undertaking the tidy walk from Pembroke Dock Station. This minor matter wasn't important in the slightest and from that first moment, aboard, I was made to feel welcome and with friends. We went through flats and mess decks, until we reached the lower forward mess deck. This fairly short journey entailed descending a typically steep companionway, ladder-slash-steps, and it was my first encounter with these, all too common, fixtures in naval vessels. One gets very used to these companionways and, soon, it is possible to slide down the handrails thereby making the feet redundant. Those days were in the future for me although, quite early on, I did descend one such companionway using neither hands nor feet. This story, however, is for later telling. As related, we reached the lower forward mess deck, the smallest and most incommodious mess in the ship, where I was introduced to the occupants. Traditionally this mess, in small ships, was the mess for men, other than seamen and stokers, below the rank of petty officer. Inopportune, the mess contained communications ratings, radar mechanics, the sick bay attendant, the ship's cooks, the electricians, the officer's stewards, the NAAFI canteen manager and a couple of storekeepers. This miscellany of men all messed, in this cramped space in the ship. One further aspect needs to be remarked upon, respecting the lower forward mess deck. Unassailable was its reputation, for being the most uncomfortable place in the ship in a heavy sea. Introductions took place and I stowed my hammock in a purpose-built place in the corner of the mess. After this, a location was found for me to sling my hammock, for sleeping. That important chore accomplished, I was shown an empty locker under the cushions of the bench for one of the two long mess tables. These benches ran down both sides of the mess deck adjacent to and following the ship's hull. The mess tables, which were affixed to the deck, ran alongside the benches and fixed wooden conventional benches provided seating on the inboard side of the tables. Supper had already been served but, upon hearing that I had not eaten, a meal miraculously appeared a short while later. Space was at a premium of course, because approximately 20 men lived, slept, ate and passed their time, in a space not much larger than a large room in a normal house. Tucked away, adjacent to the hammock storage, was a diminutive WC, termed the head. This facility taxed the patience of most men and was extraordinarily cramped. Nearly all the occupants of the mess were watchkeepers. This meant they came and went according to the system of watchkeeping favored by the ship or, their particular branch. Watchkeepers would be found sleeping in their hammocks at most times on the clock, except the forenoon, when sleeping was not permitted, save in extraordinary circumstances. Most members of the crew were watchkeepers, of one sort or another. The seamen and the stokers worked a four-part watch system. They were designated, initially, as of the port watch or the starboard watch. If the situation demanded it, these watches could be further divided, into the first part and or the second part of the port and starboard watch. Some, however, only worked watches at sea. The few remaining men mostly worked office hours. That is, all with the exception of the canteen manager who worked when he wanted to and or when he was needed. In this he was not unlike the cooks. Although, it must be added, these men did have some definite hours when food was expected to be ready. My oppos, the name stems from fact that the men were ratings doing the same work but on different watches, i.e., opposite numbers, and the other members present on the mess, began the ancient tradition of sounding me out. It wasn't long, before I had very few secrets left. Much of my personal history was soon general knowledge to my messmates, but I gained knowledge also. Much became known of my new companions. In the time-honored custom of mankind, bonds were built, friendships fostered, 
favorable impressions and unfavorable impressions were also formed and some aversions affirmed. All this was accomplished, by the simple practice of watching and listening to people converse. In between all the conversation and the sorting of my belongings, I accomplished a most important task. That being the task of tying, my new ship's cap tally, onto my cap. Finally, I had the name of an actual ship, emblazoned on my cap. A surge of pride overtook me, as I struggled to tie a tiddly bow on the ribbon showing me to be a member of HMS Opportune. The word tiddly implied extreme smartness, or ultra-neatness. The term was invariably used in relation to a sailor's general appearance, or of all, or part of, his uniform. The bow, tied in a cap tally, was of paramount importance. Indeed, a man was judged, by the appearance and neatness of this bow. Young sailors struggled mightily, to acquire the knack. Keen observation soon taught, those willing to examine the better tied bows carefully, that the best bows were faked. The ribbons on the caps of tiddly sailors, when they went ashore, were bows that had been meticulously constructed using an old ribbon. The completed bow was then cut from the old ribbon and neatly sewed onto the best cap. Sometimes the bow was ironed flat. The truth eventually dawned, on trainees or recent draftees, it was impossible to tie a tiddly bow on the actual cap. We all tried too, at first, until the penny dropped. First impressions, they say, are important. That night, as I lay snugly in my hammock for the first time, my feelings were very favorable toward my ship and my shipmates. I do recall that I made a mental note to adjust the clues on my hammock, in the forenoon, as it was decidedly prone to sag under my weight. Getting one's hammock comfortable was an art, especially in the beginning. Adjusting the clues, which was the secret, took time, patience, and a certain amount of experience. The good thing about it was, that anyone's experience was capable of being used, and my shipmates were keen to instruct me. But, with no expert advice on hammocks having yet been given, it can be understood why my first night's sleep aboard was fitful. The hum of unfamiliar machinery, the movement of watch keepers coming and going throughout the night, the newness of the situation and of my new bed, all conspired to keep me awake. Nevertheless, it was a great feeling to be in my first ship. Next morning, I was pleasantly surprised to find no pressure to get up. I was up early, in any case, but my fellow messmates took a very leisurely attitude toward starting the day. This impression was soon dispelled, like so many other false impressions I experienced in those early days of seagoing service. The reason, my shipmates were apparently so leisurely, was that they were watch keepers. There was no universal time, to rise and shine. As I was soon to find out, watch keeping could be arduous. The relative freedom from many routine matters was but a small compensatory matter. It was soon discovered that, certain tasks and duties were performed very similarly, in both large and small ships. Naval routine and customs were strictly observed, at all times. However, there was some laxity afforded the crews of small ships, from the oppressive regimentation which abounded in some large ships and in shore establishments particularly. It soon became evident that, my life was going to be one of responsible self-discipline, rather than stern discipline being instituted from above. Make no mistake, though, the stern discipline from above was never completely absent. It proved to be my experience that despite the more relaxed atmosphere in small ships, the discipline didn't suffer. Before relating more of my early experiences in Opportune, a short description of watch-keeping then in vogue might be useful. Naval watches, generally speaking, run in four-hour cycles. Naturally, the 24-hour clock is used. The middle watch is between 0001 hours and 0400 hours. The period, between 0400 hours and 0800 hours, is known as the morning watch. Next comes the first anomaly. The forenoon watch is between 0800 hours and 1230 hours. The extra 30 minutes is added, 
to allow the afternoon watchman to consume his noon hour meal. As we have now discovered, the afternoon watches from 1230 hours to 1600 hours. Next, we come to the dog watches. These watches cover the period from 1600 hours until 2000 hours. However, they are invariably split into two sections. The first dog watches the period from 1600 hours to 1800 hours and the second dash or last dog dash watch being from 1800 hours until 2000 hours. Finally, we have the first watch which covers the period from 2000 hours until midnight. The name, dog watch, is believed to have come from the fact that someone tasked with one of these half watches was said to be dodging the watch, or of taking or standing the dodge watch. This became shortened to dog watch. The reason behind these watches is, to allow the crew to rotate through all the watches and not get saddled with the same watches every day. By splitting one four-hour watch into two, this was achieved. Finally, we come to the watch rotation system. A few very individualistic systems existed. The system in common use, however, was the West Country system. This system, which required three watch keepers, entailed a man working the following set sequence of watches. The middle watch, the forenoon, the first, the afternoon, the last dog, the morning and, finally, the first dog watch, before the cycle repeats itself. Saturday, July 15th, was spent getting acclimatized aboard. Joining routine was carried out. This requirement entailed visiting all the essential elements of the ship to register my presence. I reported to the ship's first lieutenant and the sub-lieutenant who oversaw the ship's office. This last-named officer dealt with pay and the many incidentals that made up the official records as required by the Admiralty. It was also necessary to visit the storekeeper, the postie, i.e., the seaman acting as postman for the ship and, officially, my boss dashed the senior communications rating aboard, who was a leading hand or killick. The name killick, like all naval jargon, had a most plausible explanation. A leading hand's insignia is a single anchor. A killick is the accepted name for a heavy rock that is used to anchor a small boat, or, a small boat's actual anchor. My rank was known as ordinary dash my branch or section would be appended. Consequently, in full, I was known as an ordinary signalman. Seamen, stokers, etc., followed suit, one rank up, was designated by dropping the ordinary dash so one would become a signalman, seaman, stoker, etc. Then came the leading designation, which made my boss a leading signalman. This rank was similar, in many respects, to a sergeant in the other armed services. Two further ranks were above a leading hand. These were the petty officers. These ranks always messed separately from those of us below their exalted state. They were known as, Petty Officer or Chief Petty Officer or, in my branch, as Yeoman of Signals and Chief Yeoman of Signals. As was the case in Opportune, Petty Officers in the Communication Branch, and some other branches, were not always carried. Finally the insignia, of leading hands in both Petty and Chief Petty Officers, was worn on the upper left arm of the uniform jersey or jacket. Below these insignia, were worn and service and good conduct badges. Insignia of his trade, or branch in the service, was worn on the upper portion of his right arm. It was mentioned, before my short treatise on naval ranks and their origins, my joining routine was accomplished on the 15th. On large ships, and many shore establishments, the routine legitimately took as much as a day to complete. Some lethargic ratings had been known to make it last a week, or more. Walking around with a piece of paper in one's hand was usually sufficient, to see that the paper carrier wasn't questioned as to his actions or intentions by senior busybodies. On a small ship, the whole routine could be done in about half an hour, easily. Often, in small ships, one person saw to many of the requirements. As soon as the necessary rigmarole had been completed and my presence in the ship was official, I went topside to the main signal office, MSO. 
This was in compliance with the informal instructions I had received, the previous evening, from my boss the leading hand. The MSO was not the palatial place it might sound. It turned out to be a small, crowded space where, with difficulty, one person could sit and work. At one end was a bunk, for emergency use at sea. Clipboards hung on a sturdy board and message pads, message files and messages seemed to occupy most of the space, in which most clearly too was certainly a crowd. An old, and very well used, Underwood typewriter was seen to be occupying a spot on the crowded desk. The frequent crashing about of the typewriter, due to the gyrations of the ship in heavy seas, probably accounted for its dilapidated state. Touch typing at more than 60 WPM, incidentally, had been a requirement of passing the signals course. It seemed a great shame that the issue typewriter didn't appear up to its task. Looks, as they say, can be deceptive. The machine, even after being decked a few more times in rough weather, worked quite adequately. One last item of equipment was seen, affixed to the bulkhead of the MSO this was a voice pipe, one of many in the immediate vicinity of the ship's bridge, which provided voice communication with those on the bridge. The polished brass fittings, on the voice pipe, caught my eye. As in the case of all naval vessels, bright work was to be seen all over the ship but, particularly, on the bridge and the flag deck. I might not have been long in the navy but I knew, with certainty, who would be kept busy polishing. It didn't help matters to see clear and unmistakable evidence that all the brass had been painted over, during the recently concluded hostilities with Germany. One had to understand naval thinking to believe that one of the first things done, upon the cessation of fighting, was that the bright work was scraped clean of numerous coats of grey paint and the bright shine restored. However it can't be denied, a most satisfactory feeling of pride was felt, when all the numerous brass items were polished. Sadly, due to salt air and inclement weather, the polished bright work lasted less than a day before being in need of being polished again. The enthusiasm, with which the officers and senior ranks spurred us junior ranks to polish, indicated their firm resolve to remove all traces of paint from every single piece of brass in the ship. The degree of perfection desired, reminded me of the impossible standards of dress set for divisions at Victory Barracks six months previously. The killick showed me over the flag deck and the bridge, explaining things as we moved along. At sea, Visual communication ratings perform their duties in one, or both, of these places and, although it is probably apocryphal, it is said that signal personnel have been known to be in two places simultaneously. At sea, large ships might have a leading hand or a yeoman of signals on the bridge. In ships carrying a flag officer, a chief yeoman would be in attendance. Lesser ranks might accompany the senior men, on the bridge, while others would spend their time on the flag deck. Those on the flag deck would be awaiting calls to hoist flags, or send-slash-receive messages by light or semaphore. Small ships, dispensed with the extra manpower. A lone ordinary signalman was often the only communications rating on the bridge of a small ship, unless special circumstances dictated otherwise. Special circumstances might be anything from being engaged on exercises with other ships, or when entering or leaving a large naval harbor. In both these circumstances, the likelihood of an abundance of work necessitated that the extra hands be available. Many men preferred the extra responsibility and the many challenges found in small ships. First-hand experience came quickly and often, to those who welcomed responsibility. On the other hand, due to lack of confidence or lack of ability, some men preferred to have others close at hand. It was, I think, the same for the ship's officers. Whatever their rank, Officers in small ships found themselves dealing with situations that their contemporaries, serving in larger ships, might wait for years to encounter. Lifestyle and routine could differ greatly, between the larger ships and the smaller ones. Of course, comfort contrasted to, and considerably so. Small ships were notoriously uncomfortable, in bad weather and heavy seas.
They were, also, much more cramped in space and lacking in facilities. But, there were compensations. Small ships were, traditionally, more friendly. Greater responsibility was thrust on many officers and crews, than would be the case in larger ships. Less, extraneous, discipline was definitely prime compensation, while it was also common practice to allow neat rum to be issued, rather than the watered-down grog issued in large ships and shore establishments. The issue of neat naval rum was termed a benefit of hard layers. The less-than-comfortable condition, aboard a small ship, was seen by the Admiralty as deserving some benefit. In truth, and in spite of the many undeniable disadvantages, most small ship crewmen were loath to leave their milieu. Most of the information I needed to know had been discussed, informally, on the mess deck the previous evening. I had met my two opos, both ordinary signalmen like me, and had learned where I would slot into the watch roster. Three of us would perform all the watch-keeping duties. The killick, as was normal, wasn't on the roster but worked days and was always available. The afternoon watch, that day, would be my first watch. Excitement and apprehension were both felt, in roughly the same proportion, when I heard of my first watch-keeping duty. Ancient custom saw that afternoon watchmen went to dinner at 1,130 hours, so it wasn't long before I found myself eating and worrying about the afternoon's possibilities. The hour for dinner was a long-established custom. It permitted time to clean up before the meal, eat the meal and, then, get suitably attired for the watch. This ancient naval custom was in force, long before trade unions were even thought of. A final comment, about watch-keeping, might be thought pertinent. The traditional West Country watch-keeping roster, was best operated by the utilization of four men. Using only three, while it was ostensibly fine at sea, produced some difficulties. These difficulties arose, for example, when those involved wished to enjoy shore leave when the ship docked. But even at sea, the system left little time for relaxation. However, with a little ingenuity and willingness, not to say compromise, the inherent difficulties in the system were invariably overcome. We had remained alongside the dock wall, overnight, even though the fueling had been completed satisfactorily. Promptly, I relieved my colleague in the MSO he told me of the few signals that had been received and, along with the clipboard, he gave me a verbal report upon the pertinent forenoon's happenings. I learned, and this was critical information, that the captain was ashore and had seen none of the signals on the chipboard he had handed me. It was of the utmost importance, that the captain was made aware of every signal that was received in the ship. Upon notification, the captain would sign or initial the signal log entry. Obviously, some discretion was allowed the signalman. It was not thought necessary, that the trite or the mundane messages be rushed to the captain. However any and every signal, which affected the ship or its efficiency, had to be shown him immediately, or as soon as he returned aboard. This duty befell the duty signalman. After taking over the watch, my time was spent mainly up on the bridge. Unlike modern naval vessels, the bridge was completely open to the elements. The significance, of this construction detail, failed to strike me at the time. It just seemed to be an excellent place, from which to observe the surroundings. Nothing of note happened, during that first watch, and this was reported to the first dog watchman who relieved me. Feeling both relieved and somewhat cheated, I went below to the mess. There were signs of great activity on the mess deck. Some of my colleagues were busily preparing supper and it was clear the men knew what they were doing. A keen feeling of hunger overcame me, as did a strong feeling of curiosity, so pertinent inquiries were made. There were, it was learned, a number of ways to organize the meals for lower deck crewmen in seagoing ships of the Royal Navy. This was given the term, messing. Large ships and shore establishments were similar, in their setups. There were small differences and even these varied from ship to ship or base to base. In the main, however, these facilities employed both kitchen staff and cooks. 
Because of this, there was little difference between the facility and, say, a large restaurant. Sure establishments were more like restaurants, in that they required no participation on the part of those who ate there. The crewmen in large ships peeled any necessary potatoes, usually, and arranged that these and any special preparations were taken to the galley to be cooked. At the allotted time, members of the mess would attend the galley and collect the entire meal. After the meal, and again in a variance to the shore establishment, the members of the mess would be responsible for certain chores. These would include the washing up, along with the clearing away of the crockery and any utensils etc. In small ships it was different. Staples, such as meat, vegetables, bread, sugar, tea, tin milk, etc., were issued by the storekeeper. There was no charge to the mess, for these staples. However the number of men, in the mess, decided the quantities issued. Each mess then received an allowance from the admiralty, on a per-man basis. This allowance was quite generous and was made to permit the purchase, from the NAAFI canteen aboard the ship, of any extra culinary requirements. The mess submitted the receipts, for all food etc., purchased, on a monthly basis and the admiralty audited them. If the mess had underspent the allowance, the money was given the mess. If the mess had overspent, they covered the loss themselves, of course. The members of any particular mess cast their votes, to decide whether the messing would be very good or whether it would be adequate. This vote decided whether the mess received any money, from the allowance allowed by the admiralty. Voting for very good messing, invariably, meant no cash settlement. Notwithstanding, very good messing was invariably voted for. Each day, two, or three, members of the mess were delegated, by Rhoda, to be cooks of the mess. This duty required, that sufficient suitable food was prepared and taken to the galley for cooking the midday meal. Also, it was the duty of the cooks of the mess to ensure the mess was scrubbed thoroughly, cleaned properly and tidied completely, during the forenoon, and that it was respectable for evening rounds. By virtue of the fact that the ship's cook was a member of our mess, we lived well. Not only did he prepare special delicacies, but he could ensure our food received preferential treatment in the galley, if necessary. It paid to know the cook. Breakfast, as well as tea and supper were all the responsibility of the individual. There was seldom a shortage of ingredients, and the NAFFI was always available to facilitate the purchase of anything, reasonable, that was fancied. With the exception of much of the forenoon, when all the dinners for the ship's company were being cooked, the galley was usually available for private cooking. Private cooking could cover individual meals or snacks. Or, it might cover meals for special occasions like birthdays, when men of one mess might wish to celebrate with some culinary delight or speciality of one of the men. Most men had, what was known as, their own gastronomic speciality. Usually this would be prepared, when the man responsible for it was a cook of the mess, but some men were so proficient at some delicacy that they would be asked to prepare it at other times. The system worked well because, with watchkeepers being on watch, or sleeping, it would have been impractical to attempt any standardized meal times, apart from the noon hour meal. For this alone, special arrangements were made for both the afternoon watchman and the forenoon watchman. The latter worked an extra half hour and his meal was kept hot. The afternoon watchman, officially, went to his meal at 1130 hours. This gave him plenty of time, to eat and prepare for his watch. This messing system, with its decidedly less ALA principles, had stood the test of time and the test of countless seamen who had found it satisfactory, generally speaking. We, in the miscellaneous mess deck, ate extremely well and thoroughly endorsed the system. The next day, we moved the ship. The whole maneuver, carried out with the greatest skill and efficiency, took less than an hour. There was a great deal of activity and not a little shouting but, for all the commotion, we didn't move far. 
When the helmsman signaled the engine room to shut down main engines, we had moved about three miles into the Milford Haven Sound, where we anchored. The pathetically short distance we covered, that day, was memorable because it was the first time I had actually seen the captain. By long-established tradition, he was always the last person to arrive on the bridge prior to the ship moving in any direction, or for any distance. Of course, this is easily explained. Until the captain arrives, nothing of importance is going to happen and, when he does arrive, he isn't going to stand about doing nothing. Lieutenant Commander R. Dicky Dumas was a short, wiry man singularly skilled in seamanship. He was brusque, to the point of rudeness and ruthless in his demand for efficiency in others. He was supremely confident both, in his own ability to command men and control a ship, under any circumstances. He was morose and tended to remain aloof, a trait common among those in command of ships. He had the serious weakness of drinking too much, and, very often, not too wisely. He was, however, a superb seaman. His superior skills, in the arts of seamanship, were demonstrated countless times and in my view. In between some duties, I watched and listened to the curt, crisp orders of the captain as we slowly left the dockside. Great skill was required, managing the ship's movement, using both the rudder and the engines. The whole operation was made to appear quite simple. Little thought is given, by those not privy to the skills of seamanship, to the impact a sudden gust of wind or a capricious current can make upon proceedings. Even our 1500 tons could be adversely affected, by a strong breeze from our beam. The captain's commands to the engine room, were relayed by the helmsman in the wheelhouse below the bridge. In all tricky situations, and leaving a dock is certainly one such situation, the quartermaster took the helm. A boatswain's mate, a specialist seaman below the rank of a quartermaster, took the wheel under most conditions. The captain's commands, respecting the handling of the various wires that were securing us to the dockside, usually were relayed by the ship's first lieutenant. A ship's first lieutenant was second in command and could be of any rank below the rank of the captain of the ship. At this juncture it might be pertinent, to mention that a ship's captain could be of any rank, up to the actual rank of captain, as it has been mentioned, our captain was a lieutenant commander. His first lieutenant, was a lieutenant. The rigorous routine followed by the ship's company when entering or leaving harbour in similar situations, then new to me, would be repeated countless times before my discharge. Because of my frequent presence on the bridge, so ingrained would it become that I knew everyone's responsibility and job intimately, which doesn't mean it is claimed that I could actually do it. Mainly, however, I became conversant with my own responsibilities and, in particular, the traditions and responsibilities revolving around the naval white ensign and the Union flag at these special times. Under normal peacetime conditions, ignoring situations where royalty is aboard, the white ensign is flown whenever a naval vessel is underway. The naval ensign is flown from the staff at the stern of the ship or, sometimes, from a masthead. The Union flag, Union Jack, is flown from the Jack staff, at the bow, while the ship is secured dash at a buoy, alongside, or anchored, but never while the vessel is underway. The Union flag and the ensign are lowered at sunset and raised at sunrise, if the ship is secured. To conform to these clear and precise regulations, might sound very simple to do. The problem, which soon became apparent in practice, was that a split second's inaccuracy meant the difference between acceptable efficiency and gross inefficiency. The flags had to be raised slash lowered as necessary, the very moment the ship became secured to, or free of, any restraining anchors, wires, cables or ropes. Further complicating the matter, the naval ensign and or union flag had to be flying correctly, or not flying, the very second sunrise, or sunset, arrived. The actual time of sunrise is dictated by the Admiralty, to Royal Naval ships worldwide, while sunset is considered factual at the ship's longitude.
visual communication ratings had to know these times. Failure to comply with the requirements, was a serious breach of discipline. When ships are in company with others, time is taken from the actions aboard the ship of the senior officer present. In a crowded harbor like Portland as many as five signalmen, in each naval vessel in harbor, might be involved in the ceremony. Due to the size of the flags, the larger S-hips would require two men to hoist, or lower, both the ensign and the union flag. A further man would be necessary, to keep watch on the senior officer's ship by telescope or binoculars. Smaller ships have smaller ensigns and flags, which means one man might well suffice, but the visual watch from the flag deck was still required. If a ship was alone the same meticulous attention, to the timing of the routine, would be taken. Therefore a naval ship, anchored in an isolated inlet and thousands of miles from Britain or any another naval vessel, will punctiliously raise and lower, as necessary, its colors at the appointed time. Likewise, if a ship is berthed 30 seconds before sunset, the Union flag must be raised, for that 30 seconds. Signalmen do not think of this as unduly peculiar. Naval tradition is sacrosanct and only a person devoid of principles would have it any other way. After we had anchored in the haven and I had dealt correctly with the Union flag, the hands were stood down and quiet calm returned aboard. It was my watch and my expectations were that, from a signal perspective, the pace would be as hectic as had been the case the previous day. After studying the haven and reminding myself of its remarkable qualities as a safe natural harbor, my gaze turned toward the small coastal community of Milford Haven. I knew, from mess deck conversations, that the inhabitants of Milford Haven were brooding over a recent tragedy. A tragedy, moreover, that had all the ingredients of a grim and gothic novel. One of the local fishing boats, I believe named Milford Viscount Dash had gone missing. Although the occurrence had taken place a couple of weeks before my arrival, talk on the mess deck ensured I knew everything from the ship's perspective. Opportune had been one of the instruments of the search employed by the Home Office. Naval ships and Air Force planes all took part, in a massive search for the fishing vessel. Ships and planes went far out in the Atlantic, in a concentrated effort to locate the missing vessel. Only those people inexperienced in the code of seafarers, and completely unaware of the deep bond that exists between those who work on the sea, could doubt that extremely conscientious and painstaking efforts had been made by the officers and crew of Opportune. Sadly, nothing had been found. After Opportune returned to port, rumors surfaced that radio distress messages had been picked up by civilians ashore. Some inhabitants, perhaps understandably, felt that this proved the ship was still afloat when Opportune abandoned her search. Officers and men, aboard the warship, were confident that everything possible had been done. The area had been rigorously searched, but no trace of any flotsam or any jetsam had been seen. It is most likely the radio messages were completely unconnected with the event, but the truth will never be known. This makes the tragedy particularly poignant. My watch continued. The weather was excellent and the sun was pleasantly warm. Basking in the sunshine and my own importance, it was a surprise when a light was seen to be flashing from the direction of Pembroke Dock. Grabbing a light, with which to answer, I confidently bid the sender to proceed with his message. Horror of horrors, I couldn't read a thing. Embarrassment became anger before the anger returned to embarrassed perplexity. Swallowing what little pride was left within me, the sender of the gobbledygook was asked to wait while the killick was sent for. My boss arrived, albeit with a questioning look on his face, and got straight down to business. The two of us stood gazing toward the light source and my boss asked the sender to proceed. My job was, to write down whatever my colleague called out. The killick had barely started, when I realized what an idiot I had been. The sender was a signalman belonging to an Air Force flying boat base. The base was sighted further up the haven and I was unaware of its presence. 
Also unknown to me was the fact that Sunderland flying boats flew off the haven, very occasionally. It was to be made known to me that, although no official messages were ever sent, infrequent personal messages were sent between the more senior officers in both the base and our ship. The message, an unofficial invitation for our captain, had been sent in a very specialized manner. It completely lacked the style and format I was expecting and, ignoring this naval shibboleth, had appeared to start directly into the text of the message. However, the text proved to be unreadable, to me. This style of sending messages, for example, C for C, U for U, 4 for 4, etc., had been discussed during training, but it was considered unofficial, certainly not to be used for official messages. To my shame, I had failed to appreciate that form of casual signaling would be used. Very stupidly, it had been assumed that reading straightforward English would be my task. The dressing down that was handed down to me, was thoroughly deserved. Importantly, the Killix words added to my growing experience and were to serve me well, for the rest of my service. The gist, of my boss's censure, was that I was in the real world and not in the training environment. I was truly ashamed of my ineptitude and I have to say it was the first, and last, time I failed to read any light during my service. Fortunately, the Killick allowed the matter to pass, without it leaving any undue or lingering bias as to my capability. The message, which had proved impossible to read, was merely an invitation from the base commander asking our captain to the Air Force base for drinks. The Air Force signalman had tried to send CU for tea, a euphemism for drinks, at 1800 hours. My mind couldn't grasp the message I read which was, of course, CU for tea at 1800. At the risk of appearing to excuse the inexcusable, countless hours spent reading lights had ensured that the basic letters are read and formed into a complete word. No attempt would be made to sound out any particular letter, because this would slow the reading procedure down to a snail's pace. Words, not letters, were read. Monday saw us sail out of the estuary, past the lighthouse on St. Anne's Head, to perform our special duty. This often uncomfortable, but far from onerous, duty saw us being used as targets and navigational aids by both Royal Air Force and Royal Naval Flight crews flying from the many shore bases in that area. The fact that we were also available should any plane be forced to ditch, shouldn't be discounted or ignored. Whatever the primary reason was, for our presence, we spent long and at regular periods of the week being tossed about by the vast Atlantic Ocean. Whereas opportune, alongside or anchored, had been beautiful, it was, nevertheless, similar to a tethered dray horse. Handsome, noble and powerful no doubt, but she was liking that majestical something. As soon as the ship touched and rode upon the open sea, it became a prancing stallion. The ocean breathed life into the very metal and opportune almost became a vibrant, living thing. An uncomfortable thing, like a rodeo bucking bronco perhaps, but opportune at sea was exciting and thrilling. Seasickness? Yes, I must confess to occasional bouts of this most debilitating feeling. I was, after all, only following Nelson's example. The Navy, however, doesn't allow that it exists and no duties, whatsoever, are excused or forgiven on account of it, none. After moving about opportune for a couple of days, after joining her, I was certainly feeling Jack me hearty. My first day at sea, was to bring me down with a bump, literally. We sailed from the haven, sometime about 0930. I was on watch. As we passed and using an Aldous lamp, I had facilitated a casual conversation between the lighthouse keeper on St. Anne's head and the captain. This had kept me busy for a short while, and I felt great satisfaction that I hadn't screwed up. My captain, I mused, must think me efficient. In point of fact, I had serious doubts as to whether God gave the matter the slightest heed. He accepted efficiency as a birthright. Foul up, and you were fish bait. Everything went well that first day at sea. As we battled into the Atlantic swell, 
the ship pitching and rolling like some fairground ride, I learned to accept being drenched, every time the sea broke over the forecastle. forecastle. Before long, and having given the customary orders that he was to be notified immediately anything happened, the captain went below to his sea cabin. This cabin was within easy reach of the bridge. This left the officer of the watch, the navigation officer and me, on the bridge. Soon, only the officer of the watch and I remained, when the pilot got his head out of the chart house and left us. The chart house, was a sheltered area in the corner of the bridge and somewhat protected by the superstructure of the bridge itself. Within it could be stowed charts and navigation instruments, but only the head and shoulders of the person working in it. Nowhere on the bridge was completely free of being soaked, but with the canvas awnings in place, the chart house had the best chance of remaining reasonably dry. Even in moderate seas, opportune gave one cause to hang on to whatever was available. That said, it was gratifying to be made aware of the fact that the buffeting, of both the turbulent ocean and the sea-laden winds, was being enjoyed. This was fortunate, because both would become all too commonplace during the next 18 months. It was almost disappointing, when my relief arrived at 1,230 hours. Feeling like a child who had been deprived of a treat, I lurched to the back of the bridge. My mind was completely cluttered, with thoughts of the forenoon's incidents. I expect I was also beginning to look forward to being dry again and eating a substantial meal below on the mess deck. With my mind pleasantly distracted, I reached the head of a companionway. It was a companionway which I had been up, and down, numerous times before. Without so much as a second thought, I started down. I should have realized that it was the first time I had been on the companionway, at sea. That was too bad because at that moment the ship, having just pitched deeply into the depths of the ocean, rose up sharply, like a surfacing whale. In far less time than it takes to tell of it, my first step became the largest step I have ever taken. In a trice, I was on my back and lying sprawled on the MSO flat one deck below the bridge. My back had struck every step of the ladder, as I had slid deck wards. It is recalled that surprise was felt, that no serious injury had befallen me. I must learn to hang on, I thought to myself, but it did cross my mind that it was clearly too late. But, like so much we learned from personal experience, it was a salutary lesson which I heeded forthwith and from that day forward. One grey, stormy morning, while working out of Milford Haven, we received an urgent wireless signal from the Admiralty. A naval tugboat required assistance, after suffering a broken towline. We learned that HMS Trafalgar had been under tow, and high winds and very heavy seas off St. David's Head. The given location was quickly plotted and it was found to be about 25 nautical miles, or 80 minutes away, from our position. We knew the rugged coastline, in the area around St. David's Head, to be extremely hazardous and it was further made even more dangerous by reason of the numerous small islands and rocky outcrops of the shore. Even that was not the last of the difficulties. The stricken ship, blown by the wind and taken by the tide, was drifting helplessly toward the inhospitable coastline about five miles from the ship's reported position. We raced, as much as was possible in the storm-tossed seas, to the assistance of the tug. We made good time, to make the scene with still some hope of being able to prevent the grounding of the Trafalgar. What happened next was a nuda. Revelation to me, being still very green to the mysteries of the sea and seafarers. Seamen clambered aboard the sea boat, called a whaler, which, with the assistance of many able hands, was slipped into the raging water. The crew of this tiny craft, undaunted by the six to eight foot waves and spume top seas, rowed across to the tugboat. Taking a line from the tug, these seamen then rowed to take a line to the stricken warship. Leaving about half the crew of the whaler to sit it out the other half managed to board the warship and assist the half-dozen men, who were stranded aboard her, to rig a fresh tow. The efforts, of the boat's crew from Opportune, were indispensable to the successful reattachment of the main tow line. 
Only these men's efforts prevented the Trafalgar from being blown onto the treacherous rocks and smashed into smithereens. It struck me, then, that we do not know of the skills and working conditions of so many people. The seamen, performing the prodigious feat just recounted, were only doing their duty. I have no doubt that they, themselves, would not argue otherwise. However, it was a duty that showed outstanding skill and consummate bravery. Nevertheless I strongly suspect that none inopportune, save me, thought it particularly unusual. Opportune sailed from Milford Haven and a couple of days later, on the 1st of August 1950, arrived in Resythe Dockyard. The journey, by way of the northern coast of Scotland, was a journey I was to repeat numerous times. It never lost its allure and was always most interesting. The scenery was breathtakingly beautiful, if one appreciates rugged scenery, solitude and the grandeur of distant brooding mountains. I do. I enjoyed the sights of the rocky coastline, the numerous inlets, the sparse, and mostly small, coastal communities, all became well known. So did the many lighthouses along the seaboard. Before the advent of satellite navigation, the lighthouses were regularly used by navigators to plot their course and, at night, knowledge of the peculiar light characteristics of each lighthouse was essential to a ship's safety. I never tired, of the northern Scottish landscape and the black seas that appeared indigenous along the northern coastline. Not very long after passing under the unforgettable structure of the 4th Railway Bridge, we moved to the northern coastline of the 4th where lay Resythe. Resythe had been a busy and very important naval base in two world wars, but it looked forlorn and almost deserted as we came to a jetty and berthed alongside another destroyer. We were the only warships in sight. It was clear that the once-bustling facilities had long since ceased to operate anywhere close to capacity. This set in action had bestowed a funereal atmosphere, upon the whole area. The reason, the two similar warships were where they were, was because the two ships' companies were transferring. Although Opportune was aging, and was infested by rats to the point of disbelief, we were all sad to leave her. In the event she went to Chatham where, after serving briefly in the Naray local flotilla, she suffered the indignity of being broken up on the 25th of November 1955. There is, perhaps, a poignant irony in the fact that she was broken up in Milford Haven. It being Royal Naval tradition to perpetuate the names of famous ships, HMS Opportune was the name given to an obdurate class submarine which was launched in 1964. This boat was sold, to an unknown purchaser, in 1992. With all the officers and men from Opportune now inboard Rapid, our new duties soon became known. We would continue to work with aeroplanes but, mainly, we would serve as crash boat for various aircraft carriers. From this time onward, it was common for us to be at sea for extended periods. It wasn't that we traveled extensively, with the exception of journeying to the Mediterranean, just that our duties kept us at sea and working long hours. However we did sail around the British Isles, and more than once, during the course of our work. This traveling mainly was done, and in both directions, along the west coast route but on a couple of occasions we traveled along the eastern seaboard. My seagoing time pleased me greatly and, although I thought it couldn't be bettered, I was to have even more seagoing time when I later joined HMS Ronaldo. This, of course, was in the future, with my seagoing time, I was extremely fortunate. Many national servicemen had only short seagoing time and some had virtually none. Of course it depends on what one was seeking from a naval life, but I was supremely content with my lot. We sailed to the Moray Firth where, daily for a period, we carried out exercises with naval planes from local land bases. It was, in truth, much the same as we had been doing off Wales and in the Atlantic. For a visual communication rating, like me, there was not a whole lot to do. Although, in common with all bridge personnel, keen eyesight and alertness had to be exercised at all times in the crowded sea lanes which we traveled. 
Nevertheless, even for short periods on watch, I was often free to admire the scenery and enjoy life afloat. Certainly there was a routine nature to my life, but it wasn't strenuous. Life, aboard the ship, was found to be comfortable. This feeling increased as more and more of the wrinkles that come only with experience, were learned and understood. We were, what is termed, a happy ship. The crew appreciated each other and the jobs everyone did. It is fair to say that we were extremely inefficient crew. But then, God wouldn't have had it otherwise. Occasionally we would put into Invergordon but, most often, we would anchor in the Dornoch Firth at night. Invergordon, like Resyth, was once an important naval base. It was, sadly, now just a relic of the past. However, the inhabitants were very friendly and well disposed toward sailors. Also, the amenities were favorable and good beer could be obtained. What more could a sailor ask for? One day, after weighing anchor in the Firth, we steamed toward a rendezvous with the Australian carrier HMAS Sydney. Sydney had been launched, in 1944 as HMS Terrible, but was sold to the Australian Navy in 1948. We received notification that Sydney was to receive a squadron of planes and then conduct flying exercises. The pilots involved were novices who, although they had many hours flying experience behind them, had never operated from carriers. We were to act as crash boat for Sydney. These days, this important duty is performed by helicopters, flying off from the carrier itself. The use of a helicopter is vastly superior, from every aspect, to having an attendant ship, usually a destroyer, employed on the duty. One advantage of being in the communications hierarchy, was that we knew precisely what was going on dash well, usually. Certainly, there were times when this couldn't be divulged but, often, we were able to pass information to grateful shipmates. The lower decks were buzzing, with this latest news we were able to tell them. Steaming in company with other vessels tended to produce interesting occurrences, along with much more actual work. The upcoming duty seemed full of promise. The numerous veterans of the war, aboard Rapid Dash were quite quick to regale us with stories of their experiences of carriers but, for many of us, a new experience was about to unfold. One thing was certain, flying off a carrier was a hazardous business. Even among experienced pilots, accidents were common. It was a clear bright day and the sea was running moderate, when the aircraft carrier hove into sight over the horizon. Sydney made a brave sight. For whatever reason or fortuity, she appeared spotless and her appearance contrasted badly with our own well-worn state. While our crew likely didn't care, it is certain our captain was not best pleased. Notwithstanding his possible feelings, he sent warm and encouraging messages of welcome to our new companions at sea. Naturally, the signals were reciprocated. Soon, we would get down to the tricky business of landing the Sydney squadrons. A mixture of morbid curiosity and genuine interest pervaded rapid, as the two ships closed. It wasn't chance that saw a number of off-watch sailors nonchalantly standing about on the upper deck. Nor was it surprising that they all appeared to be looking toward, the fast-approaching, Sydney and gazing skywards.